Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Professor Shazine Atari of Indiana University's O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. I'll talk with Shazine about her work on how the personal behavior of climate change communicators can affect the reception of their message. If a climate scientist uses a lot of energy at home, or is a frequent flyer, do they lose credibility? It's a really challenging question, one that Shazine's work illuminates. The results in this conversation can help all of us think critically about our own energy use. Stay with us. Okay, Shazine Atari from Indiana University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. My pleasure. Really excited to be here. Yeah. So Shazine or Shaz, uh, if I can call you Shaz, I know that you often go by that name. Um, Thanks again for for joining us. We're going to talk today about your work on how the public perceives climate change communicators uh, in in certain contexts. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But first, can you tell us about sort of your background in terms of how you got into the world of working on climate change or other environmental issues? Sure. Um, So I actually grew up in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And um, I got to see how an entire city sort of develops overnight. So overnight, it went from being a desert to sort of an extremely, um, sort of like Las Vegas of the Middle East, if you were to sort of describe it using uh, a a metaphor or Mm -hmm. some type of analogy. And so when I came to the United States, I studied physics at Urbana-Champaign, and I loved physics, and I had these amazing mentors who were super interdisciplinary. And one spring break, I actually volunteered for Nature Conservancy, and I was hooked on environmental problems. I sort of got to see firsthand the type of impact humans were making. I connected that back to my experiences growing up in Dubai, and I decided that that's really what I wanted to study. And so after I finished my undergrad, I applied to four PhD programs, not knowing much about the environmental policy world. I got into one, and I was really lucky, and I stuck with it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And where did you where did you go to grad school? I can't remember. So I went to grad school at Carnegie Mellon, and mm-hmm. I studied. I I received a PhD in uh, civil and environmental engineering and engineering and public policy. Yeah. And then after that, I went to New York City, and I was an Earth Institute fellow at the Center for Research on Environmental Decisions, where I got a lot of training in psychology and statistics. So I started off in physics, then engineering, and then psychology. That's so great. So, so well-rounded. So, so much so more impressive than, yeah, that's great. Well, it's awesome to bring all those perspectives to bear on, you know, such a complex and interdisciplinary problem like climate change. So, so let's get into it. We're going to talk about these um, sort of two papers that you've published, the most recent of which, so people can look it up, is a 2019 paper you published with uh, David Krantz and Elka Weber, the title of which is Climate Change Communicators Carbon Footprints Affect Their Audience's Public uh, sorry, their audience's policy support. It's in the journal Climatic Change, so people can find it. We'll have a link to it in the show. Um, so the the focus of the paper is really on how the behavior of climate advocates can affect people's perceptions or receptivity to their message that they're trying to communicate. And when this topic came up, the first thing that I thought about was sort of some of the criticisms that get leveled against really high-profile environmental advocates like Al Gore or Leonardo DiCaprio or people like that who you know advocate for action on climate change, but who personally might have pretty high carbon footprints. Maybe they fly a lot or whatever. So. Um, um, so what got you interested in kind of looking really closely at this topic? 
Sure. So when uh, around 2009, I was a postdoc at Columbia University, and I was invited to give a talk on my research on how people perceive how much energy different appliances use. And so I gave this talk to um, uh, a sort of a business a business like audience. And I ended my talk saying, here are some very effective actions that people can take to decrease their personal energy use. At the end of my talk, someone in the audience raised their hand and asked me, hey, why should I listen to anything you say? Because you flew to this meeting. And since you fly, I, sh I mean, you know, that just really does not give you any credibility. And so what was really interesting to me at that point is that I was, here I was presenting a scientific research paper backed up by my science, and I was being attacked from my own individual personal carbon footprint. And so after sort of thinking about that, I went back to Dave and Elke, who were both my postdoc mentors, and I sort of, together with them, I was thinking, all right, you know, when and why do people, do communicators lose credibility? Would people trust an overweight doctor to give dieting advice? Was this a legitimate attack? When and why would I lose credibility because of my personal behavior? And when and why do these attacks take, take place and how do we sort of recover from them? Mm -hmm. So that's what started off this entire research project. Um, because, I mean, it, it's been a sort of a personal journey for me trying to sort of untangle for myself when and why do these attacks make sense versus not. But to sort of comment to um, Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio, I think both of them are climate advocates, but they have multiple goals. So they're public figures. They have a carbon footprint, probably commiserate with the nature of their jobs and their positions. Um, but they're also trying to draw a lot of attention to the problem of climate change. And so my belief is we need actually very, we need a variety of messengers who are able to sort of reach a broad swath of the public. And I think everyone mm -hmm. from kids, academics, artists, movie makers, writers, politicians, you name it. But I also think that there's a problematic discourse that has been growing within the climate change community. And there are some people, some advocates who basically say, you know, individual behavior does not matter at all. All we need is policy support. And I actually disagree with that pretty strongly because I think individual behavior and aggregate can make a huge difference. And I don't think anyone mm -hmm. that studies individual behavior will say, hey, individual behavior is the way to go. We need policy support, but I think that there's a positive relationship between individual behavior and acting out your sort of beliefs, as well as how you support policy. And our work shows that. So, so I want to ask you more about that um, as we as we continue our conversation. Let me ask you first, though, just about sort of the specifics of the study, um, and then and then go to some of the kind of broader implications uh, about some of these bigger questions about you know the role of policy versus the role of individual behavior, or you know to, to what extent are those things complementary? Um, but you know, just stepping back and, and looking at the the research side of it, can you tell us a little bit uh, again, not to go into too much detail, but just a little bit about how you sort of try to measure these effects in, in the papers that, um, that you have? Sure. So we have two papers right now that have been published, and we used online surveys with experimental conditions embedded into those surveys. So we look across participants. So no participant sees multiple experimental conditions. So we look across participants. How do they respond to our experimental vignettes? So we have roughly 36 different experimental vignettes. And over the two papers, we have over 10,000 participants that we've studied. And the way we actually go about studying this problem is we varied through these experimental vignettes, we varied the behavior of the climate 
uh, communicator by having them be high flyers or low flyers, having a high home energy use or a low home energy use or buying carbon offsets or not. Mm -hmm. And so we had these experimental vignettes and then we measured how people respond to these experimental vignettes by asking them, given what you've heard from this climate communicator, would you be, would you, would you sort of change your own behavior? Would you support this particular decarbonization policy? And then after that, we measured how credible they found that climate communicator. And to measure the credibility of the climate communicator, we actually created six separate survey questions that we combined into one. And some example statements included, I believe that the researcher's advocacy is sincere. Mm -hmm. I believe I, I, I believe that the researcher's behavior is consistent with their advice, or I do not trust the researcher's authority with, the, with respect to climate science. So we combined their scores on these six separate statements to to get one credibility score that was associated with the vignette that the participants read. So what are some of the kind of headline findings from from this research? And I'll just, you know, encourage people to look at the full paper to get all of the the nuance and richness, because there's a whole lot of interesting stuff in, in both of these papers. But can you just give us some of the, the top line findings? Sure. So in the climate change debate, the personal behavior of the advocate can have an enormous effect on the audience's intention to conserve energy and a substantial effect on the audience's support for climate-related public policies. And in specific, some of the surprise findings were that buying carbon offsets does not wipe the slate clean for advocates. So initially, when we had gone into the study, we thought buying carbon offsets allow allows people to sort of have this moral license to go and do whatever they want, but actually it doesn't. It doesn't sort of wipe the slate clean. But we also have some good news. The sex of the climate communicator does not matter. So female and male communicators actually benefit from and suffer equally from their behaviors <laughs> affecting their advocacy. Okay. So that's great news. And then in further good news, lost credibility can actually be regained and intentions to conserve energy can be restored when the researcher changes his or her behavior. So the researcher is actually judged based on their current behavior as opposed to their past behavior. So what does that mean? So I could have been a past climate sinner, but now if I change my behavior and I talk about that change, I'm actually judged on my new behavior as opposed to my past. And right. I thought that so was I really fascinating. My... Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I, I was saying I sold my Hummer and I bought, you know, a, an electric vehicle and I'm yeah. running off the solar panels on my house. And, That's and right. so people don't judge me for my Hummer. They, they judge me for what I'm doing today. Exactly. And we were surprised by that as well. Yeah, fascinating. One of the other things that I was really interested in in the paper is you sort of draw out this distinction between audience members or, you know, people receiving the information um they, you know, the perceptions of people receiving the information might vary depending on whether or not they actually think that climate change is a problem in the first place. So what do you find when you look at uh, audience members who sort of care about climate change already versus those who may not think it's such a big problem? So we find that information about the researchers' personal energy behaviors actually affect both people who are very concerned about climate change, as well as those who are not at all concerned, despite the large overall differences on perceived researcher credibility for these attitudinal extremes. So what does that mean? We were actually really surprised by this because... Um, these vignettes affect both people who care about the problem as well as people who do not. So thus, what we find is that for a wide range of audiences, the advocates of, uh, of emission reductions 
matter. I mean, they actually matter when it comes to personal behavior change, and they might lose credibility for both audience members based on their own actions and how that relates to their advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's so interesting. So if people don't come in, come into the talk, this hypothetical talk, they come in and they're skeptical about climate science. Um, you know, the the individual behavior of the person presenting the research actually could affect their likelihood of you know maybe engaging in uh, actions to mitigate climate change in the future. It sort of speaks to. Um, I don't know. I can just sort of imagine a curmudgeonly person walking into a <laughs> to a climate talk, very skeptical, and then they learn the the researcher has flown, you know, a great distance to be there, and then sort of writing them off immediately. That's right. And actually, you bring up a really interesting point. So I've been asked by people uh, saying, "Oh, you know, when you go to a climate talk, people don't really usually talk about their own carbon footprints. I mean, you know, that's sort of something that's not really discussed." Mm-hmm. But I think more and more people are starting to engage their audience members with what they themselves are doing to address the problem and what their audience members can do. So I think that this is sort of a a pivotal change that's happening given how challenging the problem is and how quickly we need to act. So one more question about the paper itself, and then I want to talk more about implications. The studies that you've done distinguish these different ways in which the researcher uses energy, flying, home energy use. You talked about offsets a little bit a moment ago. I was really interested to see that the credibility of the researcher takes a bigger hit from high home energy use than it does from being a frequent flyer. Why do you think uh, that dynamic might exist? Uh, And um, yeah, can you say a little bit more about what you think might be going on there? Oh, that's such an interesting question. So there's actually growing evidence that for academics like myself um, working on this problem, our flying carbon footprint sort of dominates our overall our overall carbon footprint. So it's not yeah. our home energy use. It's actually how much we fly. We, we are among the frequent flyers of academia. So what's really interesting about our findings is that My sense is that people who were our participants or members of the audience might either not realize how much of a frequent flyer we are, and Mm -hmm. so they are judging us based on home energy use, which actually dominates the carbon footprint for most uh, most of audience members, or alternatively, and this is another hypothesis, they might forgive the carbon use related to flying and attribute it to required for work, as right. opposed to sort of um, realizing that that's really where um, most of our carbon uh, emissions lay. And so there are these two competing hypotheses, which I'm not quite sure which one sort of will pan out, but that's a really interesting question that we have not as yet explored. Right. Are, are you are you planning on looking into that question in, in some in some future work? Uh, so not at the moment. And so if anyone anyone listening would like to would like to take all of our materials, all of our materials are available <laughs> on my website. So you can take anything you'd like, and and run uh, and run some studies on this work. We have not looked at that, but we have done some a new follow up work that looks at do gooder derogation versus hmm. ad hominem. And and what do I mean by that? Well. Um, so we're trying to look at whether being too good affects the uh, your audience members negatively like where it, where you if you're such a climate saint where the audience member can't even imagine being as good as you are portraying yourself to be that that might have a negative impact on on policy uptake so that's a new paper that we're working on at the moment yeah, that's so interesting. I'll be I'll be fascinated to see where that comes out. And I hope we've got some, you know, maybe students thinking about what to do their PhD on. Just got a free idea from Shazine. <laughs> that's right. Um, 
Ideas are so free. You can take all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so so let's talk now a little bit more about the implications of these findings. And you've already touched on a couple of them. Um, We've been talking about flying just for the last couple of minutes. And, you know, as you said, a lot of climate researchers and environmental advocates fly a lot. Um, Many of them believe it's necessary to do so for their work, right, to be at important meetings, to spread their message. Um, Some of those advocates, and you alluded to this earlier, they might take the view that, you know, the single most important thing they can do to mitigate climate change is to affect public policy or to have some kind of some broader impact. So so the, the idea would be that their personal carbon footprint uh, would be swamped by the benefits of the sort of broader uh, climate change mitigation that they can contribute to. So how do you think about that view? Um, and, you know, I know you've, you've thought about it a lot. So, so when people kind of respond in that way to you, uh, what's, your, what's your reaction? So that's a really challenging question, to be honest. Um, and I think our research is actually difficult for people to accept as it might incite guilt or shame or in some cases anger. And in my own opinion, I think that there are actually a lot of researchers and advocates that do fly a lot, sometimes unnecessarily. I do that sometimes as well. So I'm I'm victim to my own sort of um, uh, problem. And there are many instances where I've flown and the benefits to me far outweigh the cost to me. But then I need to really sit back and think about the costs more globally as opposed to just to myself. And this is something that my co-author Dave Krantz and I have talked a lot about. And his viewpoint, um, he actually thinks that this this thinking, this question is actually suspect because it's very self-serving. Because anything that's sort of self-serving needs to be examined a little bit more closely. And and I kind of agree with him. So I just had a a, um, a meeting with a friend of mine who's an extreme frequent frequent flyer, sort of traveled the globe, came back. And I think there are times that we fly where we don't really need to. Mm -hmm. That said, we have multiple goals and we have to, at the end of the day, really deeply question which of our goals we're trying to meet and why. So giving up flying is really hard. It's a hard sector to decarbonize, even though there are researchers working on alternative fuels for aircrafts that still hasn't come to play. And flying overall in terms of carbon in terms of carbon emissions is in the single digits for global CO2 emissions, but in terms of our individual carbon footprints, it dominates. So personally, I think um, telecommuting and teleconferencing technologies are not as great as they need to be to create those sort of deep connections for sharing ideas. Mm-hmm. And one of my mentors has actually told me that the joys of going to conferences and meetings are less about the meetings and the talks, but it's more about what happens over the coffees and beers and wines and dinners and the one-on-one uh, group connections that happen. Right. Right. So it's sort of a very tough balancing act where... I'm struggling with the solution to this as well, but I know that there have been a growing number of um, academics that are working on the climate change problem that have given up flying altogether, including folks like Kevin Anderson, for example. And so I think it's challenging and I wish there was a better solution, but I think we there is a lot of room for us to fly less. And I sort of challenge our community to think about that when we accept or reject requests for, for travel. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think, you know, like you said, it's 
one could imagine a pretty easy self-serving answer to this question where you just sort of write it off and say, oh, you know, I'm working for the larger good and it's, it's okay, so I, I shouldn't worry about it. But um, this work definitely has made me think harder about, um, about my flying and, and hope it will um, also encourage others to, you know, think about the way that their energy use affects the way that their messages are received. Um, what would you say in kind of broad terms um, to you know, to researchers who are trying to use these results, like what, what practically can we do? You know, we can think harder about making decisions. That's really important. What are there other, or are there other strategies that you would suggest for, for using these results? I mean, one thing that popped into my head as we were just talking was, you know, maybe if you're giving a presentation, you could like disclose the energy you consumed by, you know, by flying to whatever the location is or driving or, you know, whatever mode of transport you use. Um, are there, like practical, other practical steps that you would suggest or that maybe you've taken yourself to kind of um, wrestle with the implications of this work? Sure. Um, great question. So I think in general, especially when I give talks, um, people want to know what they can do. And to be honest, I think there's a lot of pain and grief regarding the future and how to deal with the future, how to deal with climate change, how to deal with sort of um, inequalities, especially environmental justice issues that have already begun to arise. And so I think one one way to deal with this is exactly what you just mentioned, is that we can start talking to our audiences about what we are doing and how what they can do to deal with the problem, including political activism, including things like um, talking to people more about climate change as an issue, including sort of um, changing their own behavior and trying to support policies, uh, and people who are, um, are trying very hard to get action on the ground on this issue. We can also start by practicing what we preach, by having a low carbon footprint at home, which is very important as our data shows, because that is primarily what we're being judged on by our audience members. And we can start making other changes as well. So I'm not telling people to, hey, stay at home all the time and, you know, um, not fly at all, because I, again, I'm sort of with everyone, all of our audience members who are listening in. I'm with you guys. Um, because I'm struggling with these same questions as well. Like my family lives in Bombay, India, and mm -hmm. I live in Bloomington, Indiana. Indiana <laughs> is very far away from India. So, um, you know, and, and I haven't visited my family in many years. And uh, it's a challenge for me to try to ba balance out the benefits and costs for these types of um, engagements. But I think it's important to talk to our audience members about our pain, about our grief, about our challenging decisions that we're making and also about how we are dealing with the problem individually because I think that there's a growing rate of sort of uh, an existential crisis about our role in the universe our role in the environment and what we can do about it yeah yeah there's definitely been uh, quite a bit of discussion and you know a lot of news stories or you know maybe opinion pieces sort of talking about you know researchers having some guilt or grief for, you know, feeling bad about the future. I will just say that when we asked Bob Kopp, who's, uh, you know, um, really uh, highly regarded expert who works on sea level rise, you know, his, his answer to this question was not about being dystopian. It was about sort of adapting and being hopeful and being resourceful and, um, and, I don't know. I'll just put those two cents in there and encouraging uh, people to, you know, remember that, uh, that humans are smart or at least sometimes we're smart and um you know mm -hmm. hopefully we we have positive ways to to deal with these challenges that we that we know we have coming at us sure um and you know we're we are smart uh and 
the alternative viewpoint is sort of we're smart, but we're also sort of a small blip in sort of the history of Earth, you know, and uh, I'm not sure what that whether we can. I mean, I hope we get our our uh, our shit together, so to speak. Uh, excuse my language there, but <laughs> I I really do hope that, and I've been working on this issue for over for I think around 19 or 20 years now. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a lot of work that remains, and so it's sort of um, we have little time to act. So I I really hope uh, I hope the folks listening in sort of take it upon themselves as well as to try to figure out how to how to act in whatever way they can. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's um that that's good to know. And ending our conversation on a little bit of a metaphysical <laughs> note, which uh, you know that happens sometimes with <laughs> these topics. Yeah. So that's all good. Um, <laughs> So so let's close it out now, Shaz, with um, uh, I'm going to ask you the same question that I ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your reading stack, your literal or metaphorical reading stack? So what have you <laughs> read or watched or heard recently that you'd recommend to our listeners? And I'll start off with um, with a book that I've actually heard a lot of people talking about in the energy community. It's a book called The Overstory. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a yeah, mm-hmm. work of fiction by Richard Powers. It's um it's a book that's sort of about the relationship between a variety of people and trees, uh, different trees in different parts of um, of the United States. And um, it's it's a really wonderful book. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. So if you've read it, don't tell me how it, how it ends. But um, you know, it's uh it's just beautifully written, and you hear about. Um, these complex people and the complex relationships they have with trees. And you actually learn a little bit about trees as you go. Certainly a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Uh, it's a long book, but it's it's well worth the read. So if you've got some time this summer, I definitely encourage you to, to pick up the overstory. Um, how about you, Shaz? What, uh, what's on the top of your stack? I love that you mentioned that. So uh, what's really interesting is I've just started working on a new project funded by the Andrew Carnegie Foundation on how stories change us and how to use stories to motivate mm-hmm. action on climate change. And I love stories. And actually, The Overstory is one of my favorite books so far for the past two years. And it's written by Richard Powers. And it's this immensely powerful book that talks about systems of connections between trees and people and communities across the world. And as I said, it's like by far one of the most transformational books I've read. And sort of he connects using a piece of toilet paper to the great redwood tree and you know, it just makes you sort of step back and think about how systems are connected. And what's amazing about that book, and I don't know if you've gotten to this part as yet, but he says in the book, in fact, one of his characters says this, that the best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So I'm totally sort of singing your <laughs> singing your praise. It's an amazing book. I finished right. it last year. It's phenomenal. Great. So um, two votes for the Yeah, avatar. two votes. Highly recommend. Two thumbs up. But in terms of like other things that I've been absorbing through this project and overall, I'll name like sort of a couple of them uh, for you. One is Kim Stanley Robinson, who's a sci-fi writer and super brilliant. And he's written this book called New York 2140, yes. which uh, compresses time and makes the reader experience viscerally what New York City will look like after a lot of climate change. And I was just in New York for uh, a meeting and I actually experienced Times Square without electricity for six to seven hours. And it was completely mesmerizing to sort of see how both the 
best of people and the worst of people come out in those types of extreme situations. So that's sort of the first book I'd recommend. Uh, in terms of a movie, I loved uh, Ethan Hawke in First Reform. And it's this beautiful dark movie that talks about like crisis of faith in the world and has a lot of climate change that's stitched in. And uh, the director, sort of Paul Schrader, sort of phenomenally asked, questions about like capitalism and religion and our role in destroying nature which is really phenomenal and then finally uh years and years which is a new show on hbo i think um deals with what the future might look like and it really does a great job of fusing facts and feelings powerfully but also in a way that's excruciatingly painful so you get to sort of experience what these futures are like and my project right now that I'm working on, really inspired by a lot of these writers and artists, um, including Ursula Le Guin, basically looks at how can you get, how, how do you compress time and space to make people care more about this problem mm -hmm. that we're facing today? Yeah. Wow, great. So I hope people have some good vacation time on their hands to absorb <laughs> all of the recommendations we've just given them, but they, they sound fantastic. And, you know, other people have actually recommended New York 2140 on the show before. So, um, so we've got a couple sort of repeat visits here on the, uh, the top of the stack, but, uh, but those new suggestions are great and we'll have links to, to all of them in the show notes for the podcast. So, um, Shazin Atari, Shaz, thank you so much for joining us on resources radio, telling us about this work and, and helping us think about, uh, you know, the implications of all of our energy my pleasure this was a lot of fun thank you daniel thank you so much for joining us on resources radio we'd love to hear what you think so please rate us on itunes or leave us a review it helps us spread the word also feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes resources radio is a podcast from resources for the future rff is an independent nonprofit research institution in washington dc our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. <laughs>